The first ever recording of sound occurred 160 years ago, on April 9th in France. A French inventor, Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville, created the first sound recording in history. No one had ever done it before, and he didn't think he'd be able to play it back. Scientists today have been able to construct what that original recording, the first recording in human history, sounded like. This is what it was. Okay, maybe, maybe that's not what it sounded like. <laughs> maybe, maybe it sounded something different than that. They do actually have it, um, and that's why I'm going to play for you now. But I'm going to keep it real with you. It's a little freaky, so if you're like, if you don't like haunted things, this this will not be your cup of tea. But here it is. <laughs> Uh, scientists, I should say, kind of think that that may be him singing. It may be a song or a little girl singing or something. It's hard to say. It's pretty muddy. But considering that it was never going to be played back in the first place, it was just one of the first attempts at recording sound, eh, you know, not bad. The phonograph was invented by a man named Thomas Edison, also of light bulb fame. And he made a recording that could be then played back. He could record something and then play it back for people to hear. This is his first ever recording. And what was thought for a long time to be the first ever recording back about 20 years later after the Frenchman's recording. Mary had a little lamb, its feet was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Kind of basic. I can't believe that the guy who invented the phonograph decided to start with Mary Had a Little Lamb. But hey, history is what history is. These were the first sounds, and they began a history not terribly long, but funky and varied with lots of moving parts. That's what we're talking about today. We are talking about the recording industry. Stick around. So today, we're going to do a couple things. First, I'm going to talk about some of the different forms of recordings. Then we're going to talk a little bit of how to make good recordings. And finally, we'll wrap up with some talk about the business, where it's at these days, what the different concerns are. So I don't know about you all, but growing up, I listened to my parents' music and nothing else. <laughs> my parents had very specific styles of music that they liked, and I'm only just now realizing that it's kind of weird. My mom almost exclusively listened to Irish music, like Celtic music, stuff in another language, stuff that had lots of violins and flutes, and it was just kind of odd music. None of my peers really listened to that type of thing, but I grew to kind of like it, even though she played the same CDs over and over and over again. My dad... He liked anything that reminded him of World War II. Like many dads, World War II was his jam in more ways than one. 
He collected World War II memorabilia and played big band music from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Stuff that, eh, you know, it's good, I guess. I guess. It got to be a lot. I'm not the biggest Frank Sinatra fan. I'm going to keep it real with you. So, eventually I became a teenager and started looking for music on my own. And I'm kind of embarrassed, but I'm going to play you my first vinyl record here in just a second. Since I'm starting to talk to you about kind of the way music started out for me, it seems to make sense to me to want to talk about the way music started out overall. So, Thomas Edison, when he invented his phonograph, there were these cylinders, these kind of roundish things. They weren't flat. They were more like like a can of beans, basically, with grooves on the outside. And that's how music would be created. Now, he had some competition, and the invention of the flat disc that we're more familiar with today, that was invented. Originally, they could only play for about three minutes long. They were pretty small. They weren't so good. This was my first record. Yeah, that's Imagine Dragons. Imagine Dragons was kind of the first band that I discovered on my own. I really liked them, and I hate to admit that I still kind of like them. At any rate, it's a really uncool first album. I'm not going to lie. It, I'd like to say that Paul Simon or something was, was my first, but that was more my wife's speed at the time. She helped me discover a lot of music, and I'll get to that. VCDs, like I said, they started off not CDs, records, they started off only playing about three minutes long. Eventually in the 1940s, someone invented the LP, long playing record. It's funny how some of these terms come into play that were invented so long ago. The long playing records could put, you could put about six songs on either side, which was pretty neat for the time. <laughs> records stopped being the primary mode of sale back in the 1980s. In the 1980s, that's when CDs overtook record sales. At the time, CDs were a bit more expensive than records, which is kind of funny to think about because now the trend has reversed in more ways than one. I'm going to throw you on what I consider to be my real first album real quick. Again, my wife, she, her parents, they kind of, well, they had, they had good taste. <laughs> and so when I got married, I ended up getting good taste inherited to me. So this is the Men at Work. I'm not sure if you're all familiar with them. They're from the 1970s. I don't know if record players still work the way they used to. Based on my readings, record players used to have these massive horns attached to them that would amplify the sound of the record. 
Then they decided that they didn't like the way the horn looked on the outside of the record player. So they stuffed it inside. And that's why old record players are so big. They look like pieces of furniture. They're hiding a massive horn, basically, that's amplifying the sound. This little record player, we picked it up at Walmart. And it's pretty small. It's not bigger than... It's not more than a foot tall. It's maybe a foot and a half wide. Not, not too big of a deal. We moved from records to cassette tapes. And golly, that's when things get a little bit confusing for me. I figured out how records were made. When you play, when you originally record a record, a needle is bearing in the actual sound wave imprint onto the record. Those little grooves are an actual sound wave physically represented. That's how sound is put into a record. Now, cassettes, cassettes are a little different. I've got one that I'm going to play here real quick. Hopefully, you all have seen a cassette before. But if not, I'm going to describe it to you. It's about the size of a deck of cards, and it's full up with tape on the inside. When I say tape, I mean this little plastic tape-like in texture. Uh, pla just plastic spools, basically. It runs all the way around on two sides. This, this plastic tape, like a, like a VHS tape. Oh gosh, I hope some of y'all had VHS tapes. <sighs> the tape is interesting to me um, because it works through magnets. At least that's how it's initially recorded. It's covered in this chemical, and when you run a magnet through it, that records sound? I'm no scientist. That's just what I'm telling you that I've, what I've been able to read. Let's see if I can pop one of those in. This is uh this is the Bee Gees. They're a they're a fun time. They're a fun crew. <laughs> they seem to be anyway. So these were popular for a while. You could play them in your car. There we go. This is romantic music. Or so I've been told. So believe it or not, but record, they were the prominent selling, the prominent mode of selling for music up until 1988. 1988 is when CDs picked up. I would play you a CD, but I don't actually have a CD player in my house. I have one in my car. I could play you a CD in my car. I've got all sorts of terrible stuff out there. Some of Monsters and Men, which is actually a great band. Uh, some piano guys, which I, which were a band that was on YouTube starting out. Eventually, they started selling CDs because they realized that older people really liked their music. But in 1988, CDs started outselling records. That all changed at the beginning of this year. This year, 2020, was when vinyl records started making more money than CDs. It's the first time this has happened, again, since 1988. Now, that's not to be uh, con confused with the number sold. There's still more CDs being sold than records. But back in the day, records were cheaper than CDs. Now records will cost you about twice as much. A CD is about $13 a pop. A record runs you about 26 
And when I look at this old Minute Work album that I have, the one that I have of good taste, and the Imagine Dragons record I have, I notice some big differences. The older record is thinner. It actually plays a lot better. I've bought reproduction records, but they don't tend to play without skipping or warbling. For whatever reason, even in the modern day, the old technology it not as good. It isn't as good as the old stuff. It's a lot heavier, a lot thicker of a vinyl record. I don't know why the production's like that. Maybe there's not as many places doing it. Maybe the demand's not enough to make them really well. I hope they fix that in the future. Of course, when I started really trying to find new music for myself, I turned to YouTube. YouTube is where I discovered people like the Piano Guys, who I mentioned, and singer Christina Grimmie, who I followed for a lot of years. I don't know if you all know who Christina Grimmie is, but it was real tragic. She died in a shooting at one of her own concerts. I always hated that. It's incredible to me the number of musicians who have started out on YouTube and have either had successful YouTube careers or jumped from YouTube to the full recording side of things. There's a lot of musicians who've done that now. How did you first find music? Where was it? Did you download MP3s? Did you pick it up through a streaming service? I jumped from YouTube to Pandora, and most recently from Pandora to Spotify. I didn't like Spotify for a long time, and I probably won't renew my subscription, but now I listen to anything that I want for a flat fee. This mode has really changed a lot. It's changed a lot for musicians. Musicians used to make money. they put out a single, it'd go on the radio, and that would sell an album. But now, we can just buy the single, or we can just play the single on our phones. We don't have to listen to the artist's whole album. And that means that musicians now are trying to produce more singles, things, single songs that people want to listen to over and over again. They're not making as much revenue on full albums anymore. The book goes into a lot of detail on the whole pirating thing. So for a while, before we had these major streaming services for like Spotify and Apple Music, I know a lot of you use Apple Music, I haven't had the pleasure, but for a while there weren't those streaming services. So people on the internet shared mp3s with each other illegally online. The Supreme Court actually got involved in this and outlawed it officially and really hit some people with some copyright claims, but this was a big deal on the internet for a long time. The happy medium that people have found is this kind of streaming mode. In fact, I believe Apple has shut down iTunes within the last couple years, so they're not even selling songs for 99 cents a pop anymore like they used to. I remember there was a time that I would get these iTunes gift cards for Christmas. They'd be like 10 bucks or something, and I could go and I could spend them on albums or songs on iTunes, and I could download them on my iPhone. That's back when I say iPhone, it was an iPod. It was an iPod shuffle. It was so small, and it was green, so if you dropped it in a green shag carpet, you'd never see it again. This thing, I think it had a, I think I could download a thousand songs. There's something like that. And I could clip it onto, <laughs> onto my shirt with my corded headphones, you know, Golly, technology has moved really fast with music. The current issue that a lot of musicians are facing is they don't get paid as much from music streaming. 
I know this is something that Taylor Swift and Jay-Z have really put in a lot of time advocating against. In fact, Jay-Z and Kanye West at one point started their own streaming service. I wish I could tell you what happened to that. I'm not sure at the moment. All I know is that these major streaming services are a lot like the TV streaming services, Netflix and Amazon. There's a lot of them. They provide quite a bit of music, and there's very few musicians who aren't on there anymore. Taylor Swift, I don't think, was on Spotify for a while. The only musician I know of now who really doesn't put anything out on Spotify is Garth Brooks, who is still, strangely, the number one selling artist in America. Don't ask me what that's all about. He actually grew up in the town that I'm living in. That's the only fun fact I know about my new hometown. So there you go, Garth Brooks. This has been a really odd shift in music, and it's yet to be seen how this will play out. We do know that artists are still trying to advocate for more money to come through their streaming, especially right now during the coronavirus, because right now they're not able to supplement their income via big performances. I don't know, how many of you have been to a big live performance? I, I gotta be honest with you, I've been to very few, but the very last thing I did before, before the coronavirus happened was I went, I went to a, to a concert, I'm sorry, I'm pulling something up. I went to a concert in the venue that Prince used to play in, in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is a cool venue. It was packed tight. If I had known what the coronavirus was going to be, like this was literally days before everything shut down. I don't know what I would, I don't know how I would feel trying to go back into something like that. But it was a different experience. I'd listened to Billy Rafool. That was the artist. I listened to him a little bit on my phone and stuff, but it was a totally different thing listening to him in person. The lights, the energy, the, the personality. A lot of musicians supplement their income by doing these live performances. Ticket costs and things really push some musicians over the edge. So back in 2019, Taylor Swift was the top selling musician, both in terms of CD sales and in terms of live shows. But you break it down after that and it gets so weird. In physical sales, Kanye West was number two. But you look at some of the other musicians who are high up on the total revenue, you see bands that haven't been putting out new albums in years, like the Eagles or Billy Joel, Elton John, people who are still really cool, but they're not putting out new music. They're just going on tour. These old bands can keep it going just based off their tour revenue alone. That's something that's really interesting in the business. For any of you who are interested in getting into it, you have to have the in-person side of things, or at least that's the way the business has been forever. I'm very interested in seeing what happens to the business side of things as we continue. Now that we've talked a little business, 
and a little bit about the history of the different forms of recordings, I want to talk a little bit about what it takes to make a nice sounding recording. So back when I was in radio, we used to work in these rooms that were covered with carpet on the walls and the ceilings and the floors. That's because carpet soaks up sound. I know this is going to sound funny, but a hard surface like a bare wall or a piece of metal, sound bounces off of it, creating an echoey sound. That's why you get so much echo in all concrete structures or, you know, old buildings that have a lot of room in them that are made out of stone. The sound is bouncing off of those, whereas things like carpet and rugs and blankets, those things absorb sound. So you may notice a slight difference. I'm recording right now from my office at Langston, whereas before I was recording from my office back at home. My Langston office doesn't have a lot on the walls, and I'm pretty sure the echo is a little bit increased. Even though I've tried, I put my mic inside of my briefcase and opened my briefcase up, and I'm trying to dampen some of the sound that way, but it's a little unclear as to how well that's working. I think you're probably still getting some echo because I hear some in the room. So echo is one of the first concerns when trying to make something sound nice. I've told you before, I record my podcast in a closet. I have a coat hanger that I've kind of, it's a wire hanger that I've pulled down and I've hung my microphone between two coats. What that does is it prevents an echoey tinny sound in my audio. It makes it sound really clean. So I just sit on right outside of my closet and talk into the closet where my microphone is. That's how I get good sound and how lots of people who podcast get good sound. So echo is the first concern. The second concern is a quiet setting. You want to make sure there's not a lot of background noise going on when you make a podcast or any sort of recording. So I don't know if you can hear it at the moment. I sure can. There's this weird sound coming from the vent. Let me move over to where it is so maybe you can hear too. Do you hear that? That's an annoying sound. Um, it's also possible that if I waited long enough, someone could start playing music outside my window. These sounds can be very distracting when trying to put together a podcast or any other recording. So obviously in studio recordings, people really, they, they make sure that they're sealed off in a room covered with carpet or sound absorbent foam and they, they get rid of all these extra sounds. So when we're doing our own amateur recordings, and I'd consider this recording that I'm doing for you right now kind of an amateur recording, we want to look for quiet locations and ways to dampen that sound. The final thing that I want to note to you all is how close you ought to be to your microphone. So you're going to be using your phones for this assignment. I use my phone too, but I have a detachable microphone that I plug into my phone just to get me a little nicer of a sound, just so y'all's ears enjoy it a little more. But I get very close to my microphone. I'm about three inches away from my microphone right now as I'm speaking. I am right up on it. I could go kiss it right, right, right there. It's just that close. Um, the reason we do that is because microphones kind of adapt to how loud your voice is versus the background noise. So if I'm doing my job right, I'm close enough and loud enough in this microphone so that the audio is mostly picking up my voice and not any of those background noises that we're trying to avoid. Because it's very hard to get rid of every background noise. 
So the closer you are to the microphone, the better off, generally speaking, you will be. Now, another thing that I have to do, though, is sometimes, sometimes breaths really mess up microphones. If you blow on a mic, it can make this really nasty sound. So you want to be careful. Sometimes I have this little thing that I keep on the top of my microphone. It's called, it's kind of sad, they call it a dead cat. Um, it's just this fuzzy ball that goes over the top of my microphone, and it makes sure that wind sounds coming from my voice or from the surrounding environment don't mess up the recording. What does this mean for us when we're recording? Well, sometimes if you're getting a lot of the sound of your own voice, uh, of your breath, what you can do actually is you can put just some type of small barrier in between you and the microphone. Ironically, one of our quarantine masks works out pretty well. You can put that in between you and your microphone, and this is only if you're having an issue with breath from your voice causing an issue with your sound. Um, so you can put on one of those quarantine masks and the of your breath isn't going to mess up the microphone so much. It's going to get blocked somewhat by that mask. These are just a few tips on how you can make somewhat nicer recordings using just the things that you have around you using your phone. So that's what we've got going on for the recording industry. As always, your book, Media Impact, has a lot more information on this industry. There's also a lot of good publications that do good reporting on the industry. It's one that I find very interesting to keep up with. I hope you do too. So for this week, we have two things. We have the discussion board and we have a media project. So jump on those. Thursday, I will have a tutorial on how to do that media project. I hope to see you all there on Zoom. If there's any other questions you have, chat me up. Oh, I do have those copies of the sports reporting. So for any of you who are interested in sports journalism, please let me know. Drop by my office. I will set you up with one of these books, loan it out to you. I'd love to get y'all on that. Other than that, I think we're good. You all take care. I will talk to you again Thursday.